This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. This is the second part of the series in which we re-podcast old recordings of honorary doctors at the Joint Faculties of Humanities and Theology at Lund University. And as with the first part, we will listen to an introduction by Martin de Grell of HT-samtal, who will introduce us to Hartmut Lehmann. My name is Martin de Grell. This is part two in our summer series highlighting the 2017 honorary doctors at the faculties of theology and humanities. And as you can tell, I'm doing this intro in English, because up next is a lecture given by Hartmut Lehmann, who became an honorary doctor at the faculty of theology. This lecture is indeed in English. Hartmut Lehmann is a German historian, and honorary professor in church history at the Christian Albrecht Universität in Kiel. He has been the director of the German Historical Institute in Washington, D.C., and of the Max Planck Institute for History in Göttingen. Lehmann is a foreign honorary member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and member of the Göttingen Academy of Wissenschaften. For a long time, his focus has been on church history, in particular the Reformation and Reformation Jubilees, Pietism, as well as the Church and National Socialism. And National Socialism is also at the center of the lecture we're about to hear. The title is Fatal Coincidences in 1933, Nazism's Triumph and Martin Luther's 450th Birthday. It was recorded at Lux on May 31, 2017. And unfortunately, we experienced some technical difficulties during the recording, which meant that the last two minutes or so of the lecture were cut off. So this recording ends rather abruptly, as you will hear. And we apologize for this technical hiccup. Spectabilis, dear Anders, dear colleagues. By the fall of 1933, right at the time of Martin Luther's 450th birthday, the triumph of National Socialism in Germany was complete. Competing political parties had been abolished, unions had been dissolved, all youth organizations were pressured to merge with Nazi youth groups. Beginning in April, civil servants with a Jewish background, as well as civil servants with liberal or socialist convictions, were being dismissed from their positions. The ranks of university professors had been purged. Thousands upon thousands of those who were not welcome in the New Reich had decided to flee, to emigrate. Thousands upon thousands whom the Nazis considered their enemies had been put into concentration camps. As early as March of 1933, democratic forms of government and the rule of law were discontinued as an emergency law gave Hitler's government extraordinary 
political powers. In several German cities, stormtroopers murdered opponents of the new regime without being brought to justice, also in my native Kiel. Early in April of 1933, Jewish shops had been boycotted and many of them were vandalized. In May, in German university towns, books of authors considered spreading un-German values were thrown into bonfires. By the summer of 1933, Nazi propaganda dominated public discourse. Nazi slogans permeated all spheres of life, including schools. Even before 1933, some German Protestants had been among the most active and loyal supporters of the Nazi movement. In some Protestant territorial churches, more than half of the pastors joined the Nazi party before Hitler came to power. In the elections of 1928 and 1932, the Catholic Center Party and also the Social Democrats were able to retain most of their public support. By contrast, the vast majority of Protestants voted for the Hitler Party. When Reichspräsident Paul von Hindenburg appointed Hitler as Reichskanzler in January of 1933, thus entrusting the central government to the National Socialist Party, Protestants all over Germany rejoiced. They believed that a new and better chapter in the history of Germany had begun. With very few exceptions, Protestants backed the new regime without any reservations. It was not that some Protestants failed to recognize that harsh and unjust measures were taken by the Nazis, but they dismissed any objections with the remark that any new beginning demanded some sacrifice. An idiom that minimized the effects of the disaster became very popular in 1933. Wo gehobelt wird, da fallen Späne. In English, you can't make an omelet without breaking the eggs. This sentence is an indication of the public, indeed, the Protestant mood and of the way Nazi violence was not taken seriously. Those who supported Hitler did not care about the early victims of Nazi rule and did not comprehend the political and cultural implications of Hitler's quest for totalitarian rule. I plan to analyze three aspects of this story. First, we have to try to answer the question why the vast majority of German Protestants was so enthusiastic when Hitler came to power. Second, it is necessary to demonstrate what the rise of a Germanic or brown variety of Protestantism meant for the celebration of Martin Luther's 450th birthday. Third, I will conclude with at least a brief look at the views of a young dissident, the views of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, during this turbulent year. Why did German Protestants rejoice in 1933? Ever since the Reformation, most Protestants believed that a strong state was God-given. Early on in the turbulent process historians call the Reformation, Luther's personal destiny and the future of his reform movement depended on the support given to him by the Saxon elector Frederick the Wise. Without the protection granted by this sovereign, Luther would not have been able to survive papal persecution and certainly not the confrontation with Emperor Charles V in April of 1521. In the next few centuries, the ties between Protestant hierarchy and those in power did not weaken. 
To be sure, there were some conflicts, but Lutheran theologians in Germany never developed theories of resistance in cases where the authorities failed to observe their duties. Rather, Protestants were able to accommodate themselves to changing regimes like absolutism, enlightened despotism, or the union of throne and altar in the era following the French Revolution. In different periods, a strong state always seemed to safeguard Protestant positions against their enemies, first and foremost Catholics, but in later decades also against socialists and free thinkers. After the fall of the Hohenzollern monarchy in 1918, Protestants, with few exceptions, rejected the new forms of democratic government as spelled out in the Weimar Constitution. They detested parliamentary debates as signs of weakness and political compromise as an indication of lacking political strength. But then came Hitler with his promise to do away with the so-called system of Weimar, with a promise to abolish the Treaty of Versailles and to lead the Germans back to political independence and greatness. Most Protestants rejoiced. Until the second half of the 19th century, Protestants had believed in individual conversion. Now, since the 1880s, under the influence of missionaries working among African tribes, more and more Protestants came to the conclusion that Hitler had not only created individuals, individuals who could be converted, but whole peoples, Völker. Just as whole tribes could be converted, they believed, also in Europe, whole peoples that had drifted away from Christianity could be re-Christianized. Furthermore, some Protestants believed that not all Völker were equal, but that God had created a hierarchy of peoples. According to this theory, some Völker, some peoples, had been endowed by God with better qualities than others. Not surprisingly, Germanic peoples, including Anglo-Saxons, were considered superior to those with a Latin background, who in turn seemed to be superior to peoples of Slavic origin. The hierarchy of peoples was not stable, however. Rather, as Darwin had explained the origin and development of species, Völker were constantly fighting for superiority. In this battle for ultimate superiority, God rewarded those Völker who were obedient to his commands while punishing those who who persisted in sinning. In the late 19th century, the German language was flooded with compound works containing words containing the term Volk. Volkskirche, Volksheer, Volksmission, Volkspredigt, Volkskörper, Volksgesundheit, Volksempfinden, and so on. No term captured the minds more than the term Volksgemeinschaft. In English, the common bond or, or the unity of a people. The term Volksgemeinschaft was supplemented by the term Schicksalsgemeinschaft, that is, the common destiny of the people. And during the First World War, Schicksalsgemeinschaft was understood as Kampfgemeinschaft, that is, the companionship of those fighting. All of this happened before the Nazis came to power. But once the Nazis were in power, the term Volksgemeinschaft overshadowed all other political terms completely. Every German was expected to be an enthusiastic member of the Volksgemeinschaft, and everyone was called a Volksgenosse. Protestants did not protest, quite to the contrary. Most of them liked the idea that the whole German people had been united under the swastika. 
when groups of stormtroopers attended church service in the spring of 1933, and some of them even got married in church, Protestant pastors concluded that the German people had become once again God's chosen people. The notion that people were accountable to God was also applied to times past. In the German case, a vast majority of Protestants was convinced that God had elected them to fulfill a special task for humankind by choosing their own Martin Luther to renew religious life in his native Germany and the world. This unique story continued until 1933. The vast majority of German Protestants, as I mentioned, never accepted the democracy of Weimar as a political order sanctioned by God. When the Nazi movement promised to overthrow this order, they did not hesitate to believe that God was about to initiate yet another stage of this national version of salvation history. What happened in 1933, therefore, was interpreted as a final stage in a story that had begun with the Reformation, continued with the victories over Napoleon in 1813 and over France in 1871, and could be glimpsed also in the emotional beginning of the First World War in 1914. God should be thanked, they thought, that he gave the Germans yet another chance in 1933, indeed, in all likelihood, their last chance to live up to God's promise that the Germans were his chosen people. Moreover, since the middle of the 19th century, some Protestant theologians believed that whole peoples, ganze Völker, could experience a revival or rebirth. No doubt, such revivals could constitute a religious experience, but they were much more. As part of religious rebirth, political divisions would also be overcome, social ills would be healed, in order that the whole nation would become God-fearing. This, it seems, was the situation that Protestants of all convictions had in mind as the National Socialists came to power. Within this story of a hierarchy of peoples, of struggles for superiority, of revivals, and of punishment and reward, within all this what appears in retrospect as a rather odd view of history, Jews played a significant role. They were not included into the hierarchy of Völker, Rather, they were seen as a pariah people, settling among other peoples as often as they could in order to corrupt the very essence of their host nations. Early on in the 18th century, pietists in Halle had initiated a program for converting Jews to Christianity, Judenmission. In the last few decades of the 19th century, those believing in a Darwinian approach to history argued that Judenmission was a futile and, in fact, a counterproductive undertaking. True Jews could never become true Germans, racist Protestants argued. Jews could never assimilate as their blood was stronger than baptismal water. Segregation was the call of the hour, they claimed, not attempts to include Jews into the body of the German nation. Not surprisingly, these circles quoted Martin Luther's tract on the Jews and their lies written in 1543. After 1918, attacks against those believing in Judenmission became even stronger. In 1933, even Jews who had converted to Christianity came under fire. Most congregations which they lived distanced themselves from them, and so did pastors. 
It was on this basis that the most ardent followers of Hitler among German Protestants demanded the introduction of the Arya paragraph. That is a clause demonstrating pure Aryan ancestry into the Protestant churches. In sum, in 1933, the belief in Volksgemeinschaft and the superiority of Germanic peoples, the assumption that Christianity could and should be accommodated to the racial profile of the Germans, thus creating Germanic Christianity, the belief finally that God might then reward the Germans with a huge revival, all now created the emotional setting in which state and church began preparations for Luther's 450th birthday in 1933. In comparison to 1917, also in comparison to 2017, preparations for the 1933 event began relatively late. First plans were made at the end of 1932. In order to strengthen tourism, weeks of festivities were to be held in Eisleben, Wittenberg, and Eisenach during August and September of 1933. Since the Nazi takeover of power, however, nothing happened for many months, probably because of the rapidly changing and turbulent political situation. In May 1933, finally, the Reichskulturwart of the German Christians, that is the official responsible for cultural affairs, presented a program for a celebration all across Germany on the day of Luther's birthday, that is November 10. November 10. Ludwig Müller, candidate of the German Christians for the position of a Reichsbischof, was supposed to be the main speaker. At that time, that is in May 1933, the German Christians, despite of internal differences, rapidly gained influence within German Protestantism. The majority of those believed in a radical version of Völkisch religion, that is Germanic Christianity. Their utmost values were race, nation, and Volkstum plus anti-Semitism. A minority of German Christians was somewhat more conservative, but they also supported the political program of the Nazi regime. At the same time, also in May 1933, the Evangelische Bund, the Evangelical League, a conservative confessional society founded in 1886, also came forward with specific plans for Martin Luther's 450th birthday. In the elections of 1932 and in the spring of 1933, the Evangelische Bund had supported the Nazi party. Within the next few weeks, both initiatives, the one by the German Christians and the one by the Evangelische Bund, were merged. On July 15, 1933, a new program was made public. Luther's birthday should be celebrated as a day of unity, for all German Protestants, Tag der Einigung, and as a Volksmissionstag, that is, as a day when all Germans will rediscover the true sources of their faith and the true foundations of German Volkstum, as they had been given to the Germans by the Reformation. At the end of August, that is less than three months before Luther's birthday, that platform that had been created in July was expanded once again. In the meantime, the organizers had asked Reichspräsident Hindenburg and Ludwig Müller, by then elected bishop of the old Prussian, U Prussian Union Church, to act as patrons of the event. They had created an Ehrenpräsidium, that is an honorary chair, and an Ehrenausschuss, 
that is an honorary committee consisting of, of no less than 157 members, among them leading members of the German Christians, but also the bishops of those territorial churches which the German Christians had not been able to take over, that is, Bavaria, Hanover, and Württemberg. Prominent national socialists were also included, as, for example, Hermann Göring, Werner Frick, and Franz Selte as members of the honorary chair, as well as Bernhard Rust, Robert Ley, and Wilhelm Moore as members of the Honorary Committee. In late August, the chair of the Evangelische Bund had asked Hitler to join the project as one of the patrons. For reasons that are not completely clear, but probably because he disliked the infighting and confusion among the German Christians, Hitler decided not to be involved in the Luther festivities in an official way. In early October of 1933, the Minister of Interior announced the plan to give all civil servants a holiday on November 10. But then came chaos. Hitler decided that elections for the Reichstag should be held on November 12, in combination with a vote on the question whether Germany should leave the League of Nations. The organizers of the so-called German Luther Day tried in vain to defend their plans for Luther's birthday. They even argued that praising Luther's legacy for the Germans could be interpreted as a vote for Hitler's foreign policy. Their efforts were in vain, and the German Luther Day had to be rescheduled to a new date, November 19. The organizers could not even prevent the Nazis from choosing November 19 as a day for special collections for the Winterhilfswerk, that is the Nazi welfare organization. November 19, 1933 was a Sunday. Therefore, civil servants lost the holiday they had been promised. But aside from that, everything went as planned. Together with the flags of the German Christians and the black, white, red flag of German traditionalists, the swastika was raised at many church steeples. Within the churches, many altars were also draped with the swastika. Delegations of German Christians marched to the services together with groups of stormtroopers and the Hitler Youth. The main service was held in the Berliner Dom, with Reichspräsident Hindenburg attended, attending followed by a mass rally of German Christians in the Berliner Lustgarten. Joachim Hossenfelder, member of the Nazi party since 1929 and Reichsführer of the German Christians, was the main speaker. I quote him, We want to preserve the heritage of the Reformation, he declared, because we want to preserve the true gospel, because of our fathers and those who have lost their lives in the World War as well as because of the Brown Army and the Volksgenossen, who, together with Adolf Hitler, have achieved the great work of our national unity. In most cities and towns, and even in most villages, similar events were staged. Through this, the celebration of Luther's 450th birthday became a massive show of German-Christian propaganda. On November 19, 1933, on the occasion of German Luther Day, perhaps for the last time, the German Christians were able to dominate the public scene completely. In other words, Luther's heritage was completely merged with Nazi ideology on the, uh, during the, his birthday party. The Nazi movement was interpreted as the fulfillment of Luther's innermost wishes. Hitler appeared as Luther's congenial heir, 
not explicitly in Berlin, but in some speeches in other places, Luther's radical anti-Semitism was also invoked as a special legacy that should be cherished. In retrospect, we know that resistance against the German Christians had begun several weeks before the celebrations held on November 19, after the General Synod of the Old Prussian Church had adopted an, an Aryan law for their church in September, Martin Niemöller and some of his friends had founded the Pastors Emergency League. By the end of November 1933, several hundred pastors had joined Niemöller's initiative. As far as could, I could find out, however, the Pastors Emergency League did not influence the way that German Christians transformed the German Luther Day on November 19 into a propaganda show for themselves and for the Nazi party. Interestingly enough, the event that energized the opponents of the German Christians within the German churches most had taken place also in Berlin just six days prior to the German Luther Day. On November 13, Pastor Reinhold Krause, the Berlin leader of the German Christians, had given a most radical anti-Semitic speech in the Sports Palace Rally in Berlin. Christianity was a heroic and in fact an Aryan religion, he declared, and Jews, including baptized Jews, should be eliminated from Christian congregations. In the weeks after the German Luther Day, it became clear that Krause's scandalous speech was no less than a turning point. Now, finally, the Protestants disagreeing with the German Christians began to organize. Too late to have any influence on the way Luther's 450th birthday was remembered, but not too late to defend the autonomy and integrity of most of the Protestant territorial churches in the time that followed, best expressed in the Barman Declaration in May of 1934. Let me now turn my attention to a young theologian who had celebrated his 27th birthday on the 4th of February 1933, just a few days after Hitler had become Reichskanzler, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich also believed that German Protestantism needed a strong state in order to counter the forces of secularization. What did he think of the slogan that German Protestantism, together with the German nation, was experiencing a great revival after the Nazis had taken over? How did he react to the opinion of the German Christians that the Germans should proudly proclaim a special kind of Germanic Christianity, including their proposal to in introduce an Arya paragraph, an Aryan paragraph, into the church, church statute? In short, what was Bonhoeffer's view of the various developments within the Protestant church that led to the unequivocal, indeed fatal and catastrophic support of most Protestants for the Hitler regime that I have described. In answering these questions, I will concentrate on the remarks Bonhoeffer made in 1933, not early and not later, even though he had much to say before as well as in later years. Through this, I want to describe how a critical contemporary was able to observe current events and how a responsible Christian was willing and able to speak out and intervene in 1933, that is, early on. On February 6, 1933, two days after his birthday, 
And just a week after Machtergreifung, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote to Reinhold Niebuhr in New York, and he had spent some time in New York in 1930, so he knew Reinhold Niebuhr well. I quote, It can scarcely be expected that nothing will substantially change here, whether economically, politically, or socially, but an even greater threat is a terrible barbarization of our culture, so that here, too, we will need a to create a civil liberties union in the coming period. You yourself can imagine that nationalistic, magical incantations and exorcisms, military postering, etc., will not drive out the coast of communism. People are incredibly naive here in our country. The path ahead for the church has seldom looked so gloomy. No word of a revival or rebirth of the German nation by Bonhoeffer at this early stage of Hitler's rule. No trust in the new government. No hope for a better future for Germany and the churches in Germany. But a deep-seated fear that things will get, will get worse, and from this point of view, in particular, in the church. The path ahead for the church has seldom looked so gloomy. Bonhoeffer picks up this theme again in mid-April. In the, his collected works, we find no comments on the Reichstag fire, the enabling act in Ermächtigungsgesetz, the day of Potsdam, and the April boycott. Bonhoeffer is, however, alerted to the Nazi law of April 7 for the reconstitution of the civil service. This law contains the infamous Aryan paragraph and explicitly excludes Jews from any position in the civil service. The 27-year-old theologian Bonhoeffer instinctively grasps that in the German tradition, pastors are also considered as civil servants and that the Aria paragraph will be also applied to the churches. Within just a few days, it seems, Bonhoeffer produced an essay on the church and the Jewish question. In this statement, Bonhoeffer begins rather carefully. Then, however, he introduces an important reservation as he argues that what he has explained so far, and I quote, does not mean that the church stands aside indifferent to what political action is taken. Rather, the church has to keep asking the government whether its actions can be justified as legitimate state actions, that is, actions that create law and order, not lack of rights and disorder. According to Bonhoeffer, the church, and I quote again, will be called upon to put this question as strongly as possible wherever the state seems endangered, precisely in its character as the state, that is, in its functioning of creating law and order by force. And it will have to put this question with the utmost clarity today in the matter of the Jewish question. He adds, as long as the state acts in such a way as to create law and order, and even if it means new laws and new orders, the church of the creator, reconciler, and redeemer cannot oppose it through direct political action. But he does not stop here. Rather, he introduces yet another reservation that leads far beyond Luther's teaching of the two regiments. In his view, a state that threatens the proclamation of the Christian message, its message negates itself. And he goes on to explain that there are thus three possibilities for action that the church can take vis-a-vis -vis the state. First, making the state responsible for what it does. Second, service to the victims of the state's actions. And third, 
not just to bind up the wounds of the victims beneath the wheel, but to seize the wheel itself, dem Rat selbst in die Speichen fallen. Such an action would be direct political action on the part of the church, he adds. For Bonhoeffer, this would occur in case of an attack coming from the state on the nature of the church and its proclamations, such as the obligatory exclusion of baptized Jews. In such a case, he states, the church would find itself in statu confessionis. Bonhoeffer's memorandum contains a second part in which he outlines the position of the church in more detail, and he does so in a categorical manner. The church cannot allow the state to prescribe for, its, for it the way it treats its members, he writes. A baptized Jew is a member of our church. For the church, the Jewish question is therefore different from what it is for, for the state. From the point of view of, the, of, view of Christ's church, Judaism is never a racial concept, but rather a religious one. Rather than the biologically dubious entity of the Jewish race, it means the people of Israel. It is God's law that constitutes the people of Israel. In the same way, he continues, being a Jewish Christian is a religious and not a racial concept. From the point of view of Christ's church, therefore, Jewish Christians are not people of the Jewish race who have been baptized Christians, but rather Jewish Christians in the church's sense are those who see their belonging to the people of God, to the church of Christ, as determined by their observance of a divine law. The question here is not at all, uh, or this is also quoted by Bonhoeffer, the question here is not at all about whether our church members of German descent can support fellowship in the church with Jews. In reality, it is the duty of Christian proclamation to say, here where Jew and German stand together under God's word is church. Here it will be proven whether or not the church is still church. With these sentences, with these clear-cut formulations, Bonhoeffer has found the theme that he repeats time and again in the next few months. In a sermon on May 28, by using the example of Moses and Aaron, he explains the characteristics, elements of the true Christian church. And those listening to him probably understood that he was, in fact, speaking about the false church of the German Christians. Mm -hmm.